Good morning. Please turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. Every day, reading from the NIV, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. The New English uh, translation, just that line, reads as follows. They worshipped together at the temple each day. We'll be seeing that both uh, the NIV and the ESV uh, translators, I think I go with the New King James Version here and the King James Version, you'll notice that there is the word accord or in agreement. They did not just go by accident, but they agreed. So every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Let's pray. Father, we continue to look to you as we acknowledge that truly you are God who must be worshipped according to what you've set out for us, according to what you've stipulated, according to your standards, according to your word. So in the language of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, you must be worshipped in truth and in spirit. That the truth applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God is acceptable worship. We pray that as we read your word, that one of the stipulations is that we meet together to worship you. So that the author to the Hebrews will call us not to give up meeting together as some were in the habit of doing. We read the Old Testament, they regularly met in the temple. The New Testament, they met in the temple and the synagogues. We ask, therefore, that as we reflect on Acts chapter 2, verse 46, emulating the early church, as it is referred to in Old English, the primitive church, we ask that we may learn from this church as you worked among them and as they obeyed you. So grant that the call to worship you consistently and corporately will be heeded by each one of us. We ask our Father that you will enable us to be obedient children who worship you every day of our lives. Hear us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every day they continued to worship. Before we reflect on that passage, the sermon title is right there. A call to corporate or public, consistent or regular worship. And the question I have is that when we sang the song, I surrender, are you sure you were telling the truth or you were lying? Lying in the sense that surely are you sure you've surrendered? Are you sure you've surrendered all to him? and you desire to do 
or that he calls upon to you. But secondly, when we're singing the first hymn, how great is God almighty and how worthy to be praised. When we sang the second last stanza, were you telling the truth or you were lying? Was I telling the truth or was I lying? And here is how the second last stanza reads. Like eastward wind, your mighty arm will sweep your foes away. We have seen fulfilled in Zion all the truth of what you say. Here is the line of my interest. We think of your eternal love and worship every day. The praise of all the earth. When we sang that line, are we sure we have nothing to repent of? Can we truly say we think of God's eternal love? Those of us in the adult Bible study, we reminded about love to one another, but as a consequence, as a result of God loving us, we'll think of his eternal love and worship every day. A call to corporate or public consistent or regular worship. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. In reflecting on this call, all I would like us to do this morning as is true of biblical literature that is called narratives or historical books is to learn some lessons from this early church life. This is the life not only seen here but in the book of Hebrews commanded. We are exhorted to this life. As we look to Christ, this is the life he lived. As we look to the apostles, this is the life they lived. They worshipped God every day. The lessons from the practice of the early church regarding public worship, observing the regularity of the motive of and attitude to corporate worship. That's a mouthful of a propositional statement. I'll go over it again. I intend to say everything in that statement. Lessons from the practice of the early church regarding public worship, observing the regularity of, the motive of, and attitude to corporate worship. As we reflect on Acts 2, particularly verse 46a, I would urge you to do so with this question in mind. What made the early church strong and how did the early church make its way in a pagan culture of its time? How was it possible for them to literally worship publicly together every day? Not once. For many of us, once on Sunday, for two hours, our day is done. We go home satisfied. We've ticked. We've registered. Two hours, it's over. We have no thought of Bible studies. We don't think about prayer meetings. We do not think about ladies' meetings. 
we do not think about youth meetings, any other meeting, as long as we come on the Lord's Day once. We even come late, so it's not two hours, one hour, 30 minutes. I look at the text. Look at the text. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. What was it that enabled this early church to be so devoted? The first lesson we see, as we would like to learn from this church, is simply this. We see or learn from the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, firstly, that a practice, it's a practice worth emulating. The importance of consistent, constant availability to agreed public worship meetings. That which we learn from this text, and that's why I said I go with the New King James Version and the King James Version in one accord, in agreement. This was agreed between humanity and God. We, we need to begin there. This was God's injunction. You worship me every day of your life. In relation to prayer, pray without ceasing. All those are elements of worship. But the agreement was among the Christians. We see or learn from the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Firstly, a practice worth emulating. The importance of constant and regular availability to agreed public worship meetings. Every day they were available. They met together. And all I am stating that this is important for us to emulate to learn from, to follow as the pattern of life as the body of Christ that we value the importance of being regularly available for agreed church worship meetings. This includes annual general meetings. Uh, these are not just business as in endemic. Now, this is worship. When we come to a business meeting, as we call them, it's business to do with God's business. And they agreed meetings of worship. The disciples demonstrated an exemplary pattern worthy to emulate. The disciples. And notice how many they were. A quick mathematics tells you 120 plus 3,000 equals 3,120 about. And you probably, uh, if this is typically Jewish as an influence, these were probably men. Women are probably not counted. And the text says about 3,000, and that's more likely more than 3,000. Every day, 3,000. 120 met every day Jerusalem. It was no mistake. If it was in our time, we see 3,000 will be asking which politician is in town. The disciples, 3,120, carrying on a Jewish but commendable practice. 
in agreement daily attended at stipulated times. And if you follow the Jewish calendar or times of worship, they met at nine hours. And they met at 15. They regularly, every day, met, picking from a Jewish practice, but a commendable one. Not in a legalistic way, by new energy and new motivation and inspiration, they have just received, in Old English, the Holy Ghost. They are infused every day. They utilize what's available to be in the presence. And that's what we sang in another hymn, that we desire to be in your presence every day. Luke is historically telling us that the disciples were present at all the times of public worship and joined together in prayers and praises to God and other activities of worship in the temple. That's what we read in the text, verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord. Notice our word again. Added to their number every day. Daily. Arguably, how was that possible? Well, if they met every day, it follows they evangelized every day. He didn't just pick people from the street and drop them. They met. They met Jews who are not saved. They met Jews in Jerusalem. They talked to them and God honored or as it were favored their faithfulness and obedient and daily. Oh, how is it? How we pray that God, if not literally every day, but that would be a glorious thing if he did it even just every week. Just every week, one soul is saved. Oh, that's an average of about 50-something souls a year. Imagine every day, if they were in Jerusalem arguably for one year or two years, every day adding to their number, not one, arguably a little more than one. They meant to worship. Notice their constant or constancy as echoed by Luke in Acts chapter 1 verse 13 to 14 that this is not the only place Luke is telling us this but in Acts chapter 1 13 and 14 we read the following when they arrived they went upstairs to the room where they were staying those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas. Obviously, this is not Andrew Sitali. This is an apostle. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly. They all joined together. And I'm wanting us to observe their constancy in activities of worship. They all joined together, not some, all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And Luke takes special interest in women because the Jewish culture would have left them out. So he says, even the women were among them, constantly. What we have here is a model, not necessarily an extraordinary one, but an exemplification of the value of regularity and constance of being available for agreed public worship activities. 
the meetings were not extraordinary. The speaking in tongues was a miracle. And there were miracles. This was simply Christians doing what Christians must do. Worship. That's what they did. They met daily. And as you read Acts again, let me just throw a few passages to you. This daily thing. That this is not the only thing they did notice. They met daily. Acts 2.46. Cared for one another daily. Acts chapter 6 verse 1. One sows daily, Acts chapter 2, 47. Search the scriptures daily, Acts 17, verse 11. And increase the number daily, Acts 16, verse 5, and what we have stated here. And if you've observed, Luke begins from Luke, and what he told us there, that this is a careful search. This is not some careless writing. This is investigated. This is reliable history. When he went into the research sources, when he went into the libraries, when he spoke to people, he got this evidence, and among the evidences, we saw them. They met every day. Oh, that's not the only thing they did every day. They cared for one another every day. Oh, by the way, look, they prayed constantly. Uh, Look, we want to tell you this also, and the Lord added to their number every day. They were a daily thing. Their Christian faith was a day-to-day reality, not a a once-a-week routine. For many of us, it is. They met every day. Luke is telling them reliable history. The author to the Hebrews echoes this same truth when people begin to behave differently. Obviously, when the book of Hebrews or the author observes the scenario, his observation was different from that of Luke. Luke would tell us they met every day. The author to the Hebrews says, no, they didn't. Some of them at that point had stopped meeting as they should have been And so he tells us the following. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see, again, notice the daily emphasis, the day approaching. And every day that passes, the day is approaching. Luke tells us in his former book that this was the pattern of our Savior. In Luke chapter 19, 47, Luke tells us the following. Every day, he was teaching at the temple. Either Luke is lying, or he's telling the truth. Every day, Jesus was teaching at the temple. Implication, there were people to be taught. Jewish practice. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. So when he tells us that this was the practice of the disciples, he's simply showing us that the disciples were basically following, according to Acts chapter 1 verse 1, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's what they saw in the life of their Savior. That's what they heard and all they are living in chapter 2 is what Lucas told us in verse 1 of chapter 1. This is the story of what Jesus, maybe we need to read, as opposed to 
the Lama paraphrase, which is inaccurate many a time. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Implication, I'm simply continuing the story. What did Jesus begin to do and teach? He taught everything. One old divine, that is one old man of God, or in today's language, theologian, commenting on Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, writes the following. We often speak of the primitive, that is early church, and appeal to it, and to the history of it. In these verses, we have the history of the truly primitive church, of the first days of it, its state of infancy indeed, by like that state of its greatest innocence. They kept close to holy ordinances and abounded in all instances of piety and devotion for Christianity admitted in the power of it will dispose the soul to communion with God in all those ways wherein he has appointed us to meet him and promised to meet us. The early church did that. The Christians we meet in the book of Acts we are not content to meet once a week. Unfortunately for some of us, even once a month, No, they met every day. And obviously, if we are to be faithful to biblical interpretation and application, the text is not saying, therefore, we must meet every day. But the principle is, we must meet regularly. We must meet constantly. We must meet as a corporate body. That's what the text is teaching us by way of a lesson as we learn from these early men and women. They met daily, cared daily, one source daily, searched the scriptures daily, and increased in number daily. Their Christian faith was a day-to-day work. So the first lesson, beloved, is that it's important. It's biblical. It's disobedience not to value corporate worship consistently and regularly. It's unbiblical. Christians meet on agreed biblical times. They meet. So here is my question. Why do you only attend one service on Sunday? Why? Are you sure your reasons are more justifying than these men? you sure? And I'll be throwing out some of those. But the second lesson. We learn secondly that Christian commitment to public worship is not a short-term business when it is convenient for you. No, it's a little long. It is a long-term business. It's not a one-off. Look at the text. This is a pattern of life. They continued for those of you who understand Bemba, but even more gloriously. They continued. It's a long time pattern. It's a lifestyle. It's not simply when I like it, when I enjoy it, when it's convenient. Look at the text again. 
need to say that so that uh, we see the scriptures. Every day they continued. Every day. They as a corporate group did this as a long term. So that when you come to Hebrews, they want to stop. The author says to them, don't. This is not something you stop along the way. Don't be like this. Keep on keeping on. Christian commitment to public worship is not a short-term business. One lady's group, I'm not sure about this here, please, if you've done this, uh, if it's biblical, we repent. If it's not, throw it through the window. They had breaks. This particular lady's group was meeting twice a month. And when they reached November, they said, we are tired. I think let's go and break. November, December, it's break. And my question is, break from what? What are you going on holiday for? From worshiping? From serving God? From ministering to one another? Isn't that a life, Christian lifestyle? The practice was not a one-off exercise or a short-term momentarily burst of energy journey. No, it was an extended, continuous practice. You've been at Indola Baptist Church 10 years. You have no reason to stop, simply because in the last 10 years, you've been committed. And here is how we speak as Christians. evangelism. Oh, who said when you grow old, you stop? Now, when I just got saved, we, we were on fire. Well, who has poured the water on it? It's a lifestyle. It must be said of us, as it was said of David, when he had done his journey. He was normal. When his ministry was done, we must speak like the Apostle Paul. I have run the rest. Now I've reached my what? Finishing line. That's when you stop. As long as you have life, you continue to worship God. There might be limitations of mobility, even of hearing you get to 90 like the late president. There would be those limitations and the right of Ecclesiastes in that context then warns us. Oh, love the Lord, seek the Lord, serve the Lord in your youth. Because days will come when your teeth will not even chew bread. Be careful. Days will come when your knees will just be knocking even anybody without anybody touching them. But even in those times, be available for acts of worship that you are able to. And I'm not sure anyone among us is in that category yet. Thirdly, how do we learn from this verse? Particularly that phrase. The third lesson we learn from this text is that hardships, adversities of life, persecutions, the world's hatred for Christianity and its practice, hectic, we call it busyness of family or work schedules, are not justifications for neglecting acts of public worship. Like to read that again. 
the third lesson we learn from this text is that hardships, that is, adversities of life, persecutions, the world's hatred for Christianity, and hectic work or family schedules are not justifiable reasons for not being committed to corporate worship. Here is what I mean. Here is what we say. Yesterday, you know, to meet my deadline at work, you know, just worked the whole night. So today on Sunday, I am very tired. It's the only day I have to sleep the whole day. May God deliver you. You have no justification. Go to the Old Testament. The commandment doesn't say this. Keep the Sabbath day only when you are fresh. Does it? The commandment doesn't say keep the Sabbath day only when your week at work was average. No, it doesn't. Well, when you come to the New Testament, the language changes. And I think the New Testament is even more forceful. It is the Lord's day. Not yours. Not mine. His. One time, well not one time, one of the areas on which husbands and wives tend to quarrel is the business of remembering important days. Birthdays. Wedding anniversaries. I think many men, uh, this is hard speaking. No, you don't celebrate your wife's birthday or wedding anniversary only when it's convenient. You don't keep the Sabbath day only when it's convenient. So I have a series of questions in relation to why we don't keep the Lord's day. And by my calculations, that generally we meet two hours in the morning, maybe three plus Bible study, and another one and a half hours in the evening, and then we meet on Tuesday one hour. We meet for prayer meeting one hour. That's probably five or six hours. Well, in fraction terms, that's a quarter of the day. At the very best. That, that's the time we reserve for God. A quarter of his day, and yet the whole day is his. Just a quarter of it. And we kind of think this is powerful. Do we really think that the first Christians in Acts were really not busy? Would that be true to say that these 3,000, they really had nothing to do except at 9 and 15 go? 9, 15. They, they were not busy people. Would that be surely true? Can we truly say that some of them were not businessmen and women? Can we not say that some of them were farmers, they labored every day and they go to the field, they come, didn't they feel a sense of if only I would have been there for one hour, I would have done nine imputa. They think like that. Do you really think they were less busy than us? 
Do you think there were none in informal and informal employment? Do you think they had it easy with saw, breathing on their necks, fishing them out of their homes for imprisonment? Read about the Apostle Paul. He was truly zealous when he writes in Philippians in regards to the law blameless. That included killing, getting Christians. They were at a time of serious persecution. Paul did not simply stay home. He followed them. Did you say house number four, Mwata Kazembe, is a Christian? Yes, let's go. Did you say house number six? What's the name of the road? You know the road. Did you say they are Christians? Uh, by the way, uh, who, is, who is the man behind Nosrise? Ah, yeah, yeah. Is that a Christian? Yeah, follow him, follow him. No, he's a respected man. Follow. That's the time they were living in. To say you are a Christian was to sign a death sentence. But they met, not once, every day. What persecutions do we go through? in Zambia to stop us from meeting. Isn't one of our prayer items simply this, thank you for the peace of which country? Zambia. We, we thank you. We shouldn't take this peace for granted. Peace to sleep. No. To worship. To serve God. To be spent for him. To be available for ministry. It's not good to simply say, thank you for this peace. Well, what are you doing with it? Do you think these people did not have young children to look after? 3,000? There were no mothers among these ones? Can we truly say that if human beings are human beings historically? May I say something as the deviation here? that one of the discouragements as members we do is that when mothers come with babies and the baby cries, you should see the way we look at them. Like they've committed an abominable. No, they are mothers. Let them come. Let's, let not, let, let's not make them feel that to come is a stumbling block. So they keep home. Why are you not coming? No, I have twins. So who said if you have twins, no church? Come, they cry. We'll help you carry them. Every day, even mothers went. Every day, probably those who didn't eat also went. Do you think these people are not getting tired from the toil and sweat of cursed soil? So the question putly is this. What is it that you'd say you go through to justify your neglecting of corporate worship, which would say this was not true for them? What? And if they lived a life really politically and religiously by persecution, so in that sense, worse off than us, shouldn't we even do better? But even then, we're not required. As long as I've looked at the church calendar and weekly activities, we don't come every day. We come simply at the very maximum on the Lord's day, three hours the longest. Almost every other meeting is one hour, one hour, 30 minutes. Where are you? They met every day. 
with all the business of hectic earthly life, with all the hatred they received from the haters of the way, with all the persecutions, official and unofficial, religious and political, look after a careful search, tells us that these men and women met every day. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. The fourth lesson, the fourth lesson that vibrancy in the Christian and church life has largely to do with the reality or authenticity or genuineness of one's Christianity. It's not the only reason for it, but that vibrancy in Christian and church life has largely, has largely to do with the reality or authenticity or genuineness of one's Christianity. The excitement, the delight, the joy and experience of Christianity and the love, hope and affection for the head of the church, Christ. In other words, you say you are a true Christian, good. Well, you need to ask part B. Well, how excited are you about Christ? How excited are about church life? How much do you love Jesus? How much do you love his church? A precious body. A part of the reason, and this is really for each one of us a test, that we need to ask this question. Why is church attendance and other public meetings so difficult for you? Why is it that? And all I'm suggesting is that maybe you need to ask, am I really truly saved? That's where we begin. But if you are saved, well, you need to ask, how excited are you? How, how much do you love Christ? You love somebody, you don't need somebody twisting your hand to kiss them. That's not how, what husbands do. Well, only husbands, lousy husbands don't do that. Lambers do. They kiss their husbands because they love them. You don't need to be forced. No, kiss. Here is what we say Zambian husbands. Your wife is complaining you do not give her flowers or whatever. Who said it? Who said it? You love you, you buy them a pair of shoes, that will be the agenda for the whole day. You know, those shoes were very expensive. Eh? <laughs> you love this person, that's okay. Do we really love Jesus? Do we really love him? Remember the disciples' words? When they will have met and they are given bread, and Jesus says, Well, what about you? You know, others are filled. And they have left. Are you? And their answer is, well, where else can we go apart from following? Where else? Read the Apostle Paul's language. Loving the Savior. That he will not hold back because he loved him. He, oh, how wide. The, the depth. He is lost. 
his love for this world. You, you don't need, you didn't need to say to Paul, come, you know, if you don't come, now we win. No, 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 no. He loved this one. Oh, youth meetings. <laughs> if it's not the friends, it's the parents. Why should they say that? You love this Jesus, surely that's what you want to hear more about. I've said this year, and I'll say it, that one of the things that's most annoying with people are just in a relationship, you know, fiancés and everything, is to listen to how they talk about their fiancé. It's, it's annoying. But it's acceptable. In fact, it is surprising if they don't. No, you, you look through the window, you see a pair of jeans. If it's a girl, you know, my fiancé likes that one. Meanwhile, he has none of those jeans. But they, they must say something about this one because they love him. Or you should look at your children's phones, those who are in the... They speak at 24 hours because then it's free time. And guess who they talk to most? The fiancé or the boyfriend you don't know about. They are completely in love. You say to them, and even for Christians, you say to them, you can't marry this one, not saved. Then they give you theology they learned from nowhere. <laughs> now evangelize them. Now who said you marry for evangelism? The reason is this thing called love. How do you love the Son of God? What is it that caused these early saints to be so devoted to the things of God that it is said of them every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts? Well, it is the reality of their religion and the excitement about this newfound faith and the affection for the head of his church, Christ. Like I said, during this time, you didn't fake to be a Christian. You see, you, you can't go to Congo DRC for argument's sake. And then you meet some rebel and they ask you, which side are you on? You don't lie to be killed. You lie to save your neck. You tell them, on your side, I am this side. You don't say to them, you're on the wrong side and you say, no, I'm on Kabila's side. You don't do that. These, when they said saved, they were. And that's partly there was no problem in somebody saying, saved today, we'll baptize you right away. That's one reason that practice was. As you read on, then it will be instructed, because then reality has done. There will be men that will say, saved, one year down the road, you ask the question again, did you say you were saved? I say, yeah, 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 yeah. So when were you saved again? They give you the debts, but the lifestyle tells you there's something wrong. So which salvation is this one? They were saved, really saved, as if there is nothing half. These were in reality. Oh, you meet people that are saved, and they are standing right, and they, their motivations are right. You, you won't mistake it. You won't need to push them. The reason Christ was a living reality to them and his resurrection powers at work in their lives through the spirit and where and they were an obedient lot, not perfectly obedient, but obedient nonetheless. 
It was the reality of the Christian faith and devotion to Christ because during these times to confess that you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ was to announce a death sentence. No one could pretend to be a Christian. Those who say that they were Christians were for real Christians. It's today to go to Afghanistan and say you are a Christian. It's today to go to China and say you are a Christian, not the official church, the underground one. It's today to go to Egypt, an orthodox infested area, and say you are an evangelical Christian. It's to go to Sudan and say you are saved in some places. You will be dead. In those places, you don't pretend. I was watching TV yesterday, and the young lady that was uh, anchoring this program was obviously a hip-hop young lady, and everything she was saying was hip-hop and I and I. And then she said, we are a Christian nation. All of us are Christians. That's the Christians we have in Zambia. That's the problem with the church. Many that confess to be Christians, probably not. So I ask the question, beloved, are you saved? Are you saved? Are you sure you are a Christian? It may be your apathy to the things of God, because you are less excited. You're not in love with Christ. Maybe you are a stranger to the head of the church. Are you sure you are saved? You notice that Luke, after recording great increase and probably peaceful moments in the first three chapters, is followed in chapter with the first record of persecution. In chapter 5, verse 18, the apostles were arrested. In chapter 6, 8 to the end of chapter 7, Stephen is arrested and killed by stoning. The apostle Paul is in trouble. All the apostles, you read history, were probably crucified or killed for the faith. They stood because they were really saved. The Christians we meet in the book of Acts were not content to meet once a week for services as usual. They were a team that were committed to serving Christ. How was it possible for these saints to stand up so resolutely in the face of persecution? How is it that it is said of them every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts? It is simply that their Christianity was vibrantly real, genuinely vibrant, exciting, pulsating or lively, and a deep or passionate in and outward affection or adoration for their Savior, Jesus Christ. I say excitement or joy about and for Christ and the Christian faith because when you survey the book of Acts, you will notice that one of the sub-themes of Acts is joy. Because the victorious church is a joyful one. Let me throw these passages to you. You can read them in the book of Acts, reflecting excitement and joy. Chapter 5, verse 41. Chapter 8, verse 8 and 39. Chapter 11, verse 23. 
chapter 12, verse 14, chapter 13, 48 and 52, chapter 14, verse 17, chapter 15, verse 331, chapter 16, verse 34, chapter 21, verse 17, selected portions that will show you that in the context of persecution, they were a lively church. They were a joyful church. They were excited to serve Jesus. The text, therefore, beloved, is a reminder that we ought to, we should, we must worship God corporately. Don't be like one man I met when I was staying in Deke, I think that was about 95, 94, and his argument was, I worship on TV. You know, when a preacher uh, is there, that, that's fine. No, the text says corporate worship is part of Christian life. You are born in a family. You are not born to be alone. The disciples of Jesus in the early days of Christianity discharged their duty in this matter with great diligence. But in the course of time, the love of some began to cool, which appeared in their neglect of the duties of public worship. And so to prevent the spreading of this great evil, the apostle, arguably Paul, but I know there are other areas of thought in terms of the author of Hebrews, admonished them, do not, do not. May I therefore, beloved, persuade you to take corporate worship seriously, to attend a great meetings of worship seriously, because that's what Christian life is about. That's what the saved do. That's what men and women, boys and girls, were excited for Christ to do. Unless you are not that, you may continue your lifestyle of neglecting corporate worship. So I ask again, maybe you are pathetic to the things of God. Because the reality of being saved is not there. Once you're saved, you know. Beloved, to be a Christian is a beautiful thing is absolutely incomparable in a class of itself, superlatively beyond description. Are you saved? And if you are, enjoy the excitement of corporate worship. May God grant that you'll be that Christian, that I'll be that Christian. Amen.